Welcome to the Fried Harman Leadership Podcast from the Center for Excellence in Spiritual Leadership, the podcast dedicated to developing and encouraging spiritual leaders for the kingdom. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5. This is your host, Josh Ketchum, and this is the FHU Leadership Podcast, and we're glad you're listening today. And today I have a special guest, Dr. Doug Burleson is with me. Welcome, Doug. Hey, thank you, Josh. Good to be with you. Well, I'm excited about our topic today. So uh, our topic involves a list that you came across recently about uh, things in religious leaders that you respect. And um, I want to talk about this list, and you also posted it to social media, and that got some feedback. And so we want to talk about and think there's some things that we can learn from this list and also kind of throw these topics around and maybe even come up with some more things. Yeah, so I think we all have uh, been the beneficiaries of leaders, elders, preachers, mentors uh, that we look to and admire. And there are probably innumerable reasons we feel that way. Uh, But this is a list. I follow a a denominational leader in Britain who uh, on Twitter posted recently eight qualities of religious leaders uh, that he respects. Mm -hmm. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought, you know, this is a different way of thinking about that because typically we would evaluate that based on length of service or uh, knowledge or perhaps ability to engage the community. You know, we're not making light of any of those things. Uh, But my motivation in posting this is I think sometimes pride and ego might drive me to think about this in a different way than I perhaps need to in light of God's will. And so he uh, shared eight things, and I shared this on Facebook on September the 12th uh, and on Twitter, and uh, then got a lot of responses. Mm -hmm. And I think it touched uh, people in various ways. Some folks disagreed with a few of these. Some folks wanted to add some things, which I invited them to to do. And so let me just read the eight, and we can chew on it. All right. Go ahead, Doug. Read the eight, and we'll, we'll talk about these. Sure. Uh, So these are listed in order, I think, of uh, significance, according to Tim Wilson, the fellow who shared this. One, uh, retiring with no drama. Mm -hmm. Two, no desire to be a name, a big name. Three, listen well. Four, even when weak in human strength, rely on God's strength, uh, which he refers to as uh, ministering with a limp. We can talk about that. Five, stand for truth even when it hurts. Six, have time for children. Seven, treat women with respect. And eight, preach Jesus as plan A, B, all the way to Z. Those are his eight. So when, I, when you were, you've been talking about this, one of the things that I, you talked about how we often evaluate leadership is by results. We're kind of results-oriented, like they... I had this many baptisms, or they uh, helped build a church of a thousand people, or they they ministered there for forty years, or they taught school there and had all these you know students come out of there and, and made it. Be. So we look at results, mm-hmm. um, especially maybe as in our context of Americans and business and things. Um, but what you're saying with this list is let's kind of set aside the results and let's talk about more of the character. Yeah, results matter, and we want to glorify God in that. I remember a time in Baton Rouge when we were doing disaster relief, and we had some great workers there, and some of them said, hey, let's go through as people are waiting in line to get supplies and try to set up some Bible studies, which was great. And at the end of one day, they had set up 981 Bible studies. 
And so we began trying to prepare to go and uh, contact these people and follow up with them. And, uh, and we did. And uh, about 15 of them we were able to follow up with in a way that led to an actual study. Mm-hmm. Now, I could have gone around and said, we set up 981 Bible studies. Mm-hmm. And I think, although that's not fair for everyone, um, whether we're talking about on the mission field or maybe in our congregational settings, uh, numbers can be misrepresented mm-hmm. and can really, I think, maybe, uh, I, I know of some guys who've benefited in ministry from, you know, maybe a new factory is built in town while they're serving there. Maybe uh, there's a reason why a lot of folks either come to town or leave town. And it would be easy to say, well, that preacher ran 100 people off. Well, maybe the factory closed and that was beyond his control. So I just think it's healthier to think about this in terms of what God does and how I participate in that. And certainly some guys are maybe more effective than others, but I'm afraid that leads to a comparative game where maybe I, you know, I, I think more like a used car salesman than a preacher of the gospel. Yes, and, and in, in preachers, youth ministers, and one of the big problems that I have witnessed and my own life I have to guard against is jealousy. And I think, you know, kind of this comparative game, I think, you know, I was surprised when I got into um, preaching about how some guys didn't want to go to preacher's meetings and there was a negative connotation around preacher's meetings. Um, and a lot of that was because of jealousy, because of fears of conflict in those kind of meetings. And I'm like, we should be getting together to encourage each other, not trying to one-up each other, but sometimes it can, it can tend to be like, well, let me tell you all that I've done. You know, I, this is how busy I've been. This is what we accomplished. And it's almost like we have to say all that to, to validate our own ministry, our own work. And instead of resting in, in Jesus. Yeah, I'm thinking that nothing on this list would show up on a resume. Yeah. I mean, you, you and I, you know, do these uh, curriculum vita things every year, and it's important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you need to list all of the things that you've accomplished, but uh, I don't know that making time for children is going to make that list. (laughs) No. You know, as a matter of fact, there might be some people who would say, well, if you spent less time with children Mm -hmm. and more time, you know, trying to get on the big lecture ship and be on the main floor, you know, where brother better than you has spoken for 40 years, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's real. And that's why I'm having you on the podcast, Doug. Secret reason there. I'm, I'm having you on the podcast so I can get on the main floor. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, every year we keep a list of, of recommendations, recommended speakers. Uh-huh. And I always include, and this is just for me and, you know, a few others to see, but who recommended them? And some years it's so precious. Somebody's spouse mm-hmm. will anonymously recommend their husband or maybe their wife on the ladies' mm-hmm. program. But I always, I'll just say, I always make a note if somebody recommends themselves, yeah. which is the most frequent application. And, you know, maybe it's in a humble manner. You know, I, I, I've taught a lot on Hezekiah. You know, let me, let me speak on that. Uh, but again, that doesn't look like what's on this list either. Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's look at number one, um, which you said might have been the most debated one. Yeah. Um, retire without drama. So that's the religious leaders you respect. So we're talking about those. Retire maybe is the end of a ministry, but it also kind of leaves. It can happen if you think about leaving a ministry, which I think 
is one of the hardest aspects of being a church leader is when do you leave? Not wanting to stay too long, not wanting to harm things. And so how do you do this without drama? What do you think's meant in that context? Yeah, this was the most controversial. And there were some people saying, well, if you preach the truth, there may be drama. You know, Jesus had drama. Um, and that's a good point. But I think what's being said here is uh, it's easy to get our feelings hurt. It's easy to feel underappreciated. Um, it's easy to be resentful because we've poured ourselves into a work. And when it's time to, to leave, um, you know, if you've been tempted to keep score, you're, you're going to walk off the court thinking I've, I've given everything I've got and maybe not enough people appreciate this. The elders, they don't seem to appreciate this like they should. That mean secretary, you know, uh, she's so glad I'm gone now, you know, or whatever. And <clears throat> I think this is just an attitude that we probably have to have all the time. Um, there are going to be people who are better at expressing appreciation. There are going to be people who are not going to appreciate our ministries. And I do think looking to Jesus is a great way to respond to that. Uh, but that Revelation 2.10 promise is real, <clears throat> and I don't think that's just applicable to being faithful unto death. Maybe being faithful until the very last Sunday you're there, when you have the pulpit and an opportunity to maybe do some passive-aggressive shots across the bow, but instead you're going to preach the truth in love. And um, now I'm not suggesting we should take abuse, um, even though the way of the cross might demand that at times. But I know some guys who I think want to leave congregations in a lurch because they want people to know how much they did and how important they were. And perhaps this is an opportunity for us to think differently. Well, it, once again, it kind of gets back to I think what I was saying earlier about the preacher's meetings. We are all asking the question in many ways, did I make a difference? You know, was my ministry valid? Was the, all the effort I put into this, was it worth it? And so then we look to the, we ask that question, and then we look out there to people to tell us, hey, it was worth it. You made a big difference. You impacted my life. And so if we don't get that for whatever reason, then we, we might tend to create that at times or feel snubbed. And, and if there is a lot of drama sometimes, I mean, that's just tough it's just, because we do have that in us, and we need that. And, and honor to whom honor should be given. You know, there is this sense of where honor needs to be given, Um and so this is a, a challenging one, I think, that we all have of, of being humble with it and also being willing uh, to not have to have the first seat, to take the, to take the lesser seats. It's a hard thing to, and I, I want to say this in a way that makes sense, but it's a hard thing to learn how to lose with grace. Mm -hmm. And that's just going to be a part of life. Now, some guys maybe have never really experienced that. They've, the ball's always gone through the hoop for them. But most of us are going to have disappointments and things that we wish had ended differently. Um, but <clears throat> I think people learn maybe even more from us in those times than they do when we're on the mountaintop. Yeah. And preachers' meetings, as great as they are, I, I always enjoyed them mm -hmm. uh, when I was able to participate in those. A lot of guys aren't really showing you the full picture in those meetings. They're it's like social media. They're wanting you to think, man, this is the greatest church. We've got all these things going on, and 
you know, if we if we could be a little less, um, be a little bit more transparent in those meetings, a lot of us are dealing with the same stuff. Yeah, we just don't always want to be open about that because we don't want people to see our weakness. And maybe that's part of what that number four walk with a limp. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be always wear it on my sleeve and make people feel sorry for me. That's not what we're saying. But I think if we could be a little bit more humble, even in the pulpit, and I'm a, I'm a we, us preacher, not a you preacher. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a part of the problem. <laughs> I've got a sin problem and my family isn't perfect and I'm far from perfect and I need what they need. Now, some sermons, it may be harder to do that, but I think that is a part of our ministry too. And so that's what Paul Paul's suffering, 2 Corinthians 11, I used to think was a detriment to his ministry, but I think it was a means to his ministry. You learned a lot from that man just walk, watching him get up and walk again and and not be defined by the way people have treated him. Bitterness can creep into our ministry, not be defined by a suspicion of every elder because you've served under some people who maybe mistreated you or a or an associate minister, you know, the relationships in that office can get tough and awkward. Uh, So, you know, allowing, hey, I've got a wonderful spouse, but our marriage isn't perfect. And I love my kids, and I want you to think they're the best kids ever, and and I think they are, but they're not perfect, especially when they're teenagers and college students. I mean, so I I think this is all just a part of um, that Romans 12, 3, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think, but think soberly as Christ has dealt to each one of you a measure of faith, reality. Mm-hmm. Easier said than done. Yes. And and in our culture today, I think one of the good things about our culture is that people want to follow a vulnerable leader. Now, they'd rather follow, follow a leader that's real than a leader that is fake and and giving this image that's, that they know is not really true, but they're, it's projecting it. And so people want to see that vulnerability. They want to see that transparency. And they want to know that you're real. And and then they can then buy into it. I think that's what Paul represented in his ministry. You know, he, he was open with them about his struggles and he wanted them to pray for him. He wanted them to to, you know, understand the battles he was fighting so that, that they, when they're fighting their battles, could imitate him. Mm. And he took a lot of people with him. Yeah. You know, I don't remember the exact number. Uh, but over 70 people named in his epistles, they weren't all equal as far as coworkers, but they were all important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe even thinking about treating women with respect, mm-hmm. um, I think about opportunities Jesus had to minister, like in John 4, to a woman who clearly had been through a lot of stuff. And I don't want to speculate as to the reasons why, but... You just get the sense in the fact she had been married five times and was living now with somebody that wasn't her husband that she was very open to those kinds of relationships. And Jesus doesn't even, he doesn't even go there. He just speaks to her need. And her, despite her being a Samaritan and being ostracized for a lot of reasons, and even though I know the John 7, 53 through 811 story is controversial, you could make the same point there that Jesus was able to not um, be motivated by lust. He was never motivated by chauvinism. Um, 
he understood the need for accountability in ministry. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of have a big window in the office door, have somebody right there who knows what's going on, have, uh, you know, whether it's online or in person, have accountability and transparency and let's be people of integrity. I think that's a part of number seven, treat women with respect. But it's also um, about recognizing that they're equal in the kingdom, even though we have different jobs. And I think the way a lot of guys think about our sisters and treat them, uh, you learn a lot about a person uh, just by the way they treat people of the opposite sex or, or kids, you know. Um, that's Mark 9 and 10. How does Jesus engage children? That seems pretty near to the heart of God. And I hope I'm never too busy or think of myself too highly to take time for these precious kiddos. And, you know, even as a church leadership, think about elders, deacons, how do they as a whole uh, view the role of women in their church? And, and when they have ideas, when they have suggestions, or when they have problems, you know, is it just, well, that's a, that's a woman's issue. That's just the women disagreeing again, you know. Um, or do they validate that and say, all right, these are valuable sisters in the kingdom, and we need to get involved in this. You know, I'm teaching Philippians now, and, you know, Paul dealt with a lot of things, I believe, earlier in Philippians before he got to chapter 4 when he called out Euodia and Syntyche. But he, I believe that relationship was affecting the entire church. And so Paul wanted to lay a groundwork, I think, in chapter 2 especially, but then chapter 4, he says, you guys got to agree. And, you know, and he calls on the true companion to help them agree and work this out. And so I think that he, he's validating that these women are very important in the church. Mm-hmm. I think we need to have that. What, what's, what's another one on the list that we could talk about? Well, one of the things uh, that wasn't quite as controversial, but I think people could maybe misunderstand, is preaching Jesus, you know, as plan A, B, all the way to Z. Yeah. Someone might assume that means... We shouldn't preach the epistles. We shouldn't preach doctrine uh, or the Old Testament. But I would interpret that to mean that he's the key to understanding all of those realities, um, that as we talk about loving our neighbor and giving sacrificially and being obedient, um, praying, I mean, you can look at the example of Christ. You can, you can, you can really major in the minors sometimes in ministry. And there are or maybe there are those lessons that we get assigned that seem a little bit out of the box. Um, but I, I think we can never talk about our Lord enough mm-hmm. and really model our ministries after his character rather than, you know, the way that another one of our heroes may have done it in his particular context. Yes. We need to constantly be pointing people back to Jesus and bringing the, whatever passage we're talking about back into the view of Christ and what Christ, how Christ influences that passage and that us living that out in our own lives. What um, there was what what other comments did you get um, really validating the ones? Which ones were really positive? In other words, people said, "Yeah, that's something I really respect in a leader when they do that." Well, I think number two, no desire to be a name, which mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about with pride. Uh, number five, stand for truth when it hurts. I'm thinking about how that might especially apply when people are considering marriage. Uh, you know, John the Baptist got his head cut off for, for challenging somebody's right to marry. Um, that's a difficult thing because we want to be humble, but we also want to speak the truth with regard to God's plan for marriage and how that in, involves divorce and remarriage. And uh, there might be times that speaking the truth 
could impact people in our own family or perhaps people that we're really close to. Uh, it might even get us threatened in some context. Uh, we don't want you talking about that and and navigating how to balance a desire to preach the whole counsel of God, you know, Acts 20 with respecting our elders. When that comes into play, I think a lot of guys struggle with that. Uh, those were all positives. Several people, though, chimed in and mentioned how love needs to be a motivation and love should be on the list. I just suggested that love is at the root of all these. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could add one, I don't want to jump ahead of you, but no, that's fine. I, I, I think the way that a minister or elder treats the oldest members of the congregation also says something about their heart and their perspective. Um, you know, it seems that we live in a culture where it's a lot easier to stick somebody in an assisted living facility and sort of write them off than it is to really give attention to what they're going through and what their needs are. And we're all busy. We can't, we can't do it all. Hopefully we're a part of a team, but like with children, I think you just learn a lot by the way a person treats those folks who maybe aren't as active, can't be as active. Um, and this doesn't have anything to do with their money. It's just, we love them. And whether they're rich or poor, we want them to know Jesus loves them. Remember the parable Christ talks about all these influential people were invited, but none of them came. So he said, go, go out into the streets and the byways and invite the, the poor, uh, the sick, invite all of those people to come. And, it, and when you think about that parable and that teaching, it seems that what he's saying in terms of hospitality is how many people do you serve that can't pay you anything back? Mm-hmm. You think about that. You know, what? why do I have someone over to my house? Well, typically I want to have someone over to my house that I can – socially relate to have fun with you know they have kids the kids can play with my kids and we can sit around and visit over hamburgers and just have a good time together but think about when have i had someone over to my house that can't give me any pleasure of my own but i'm just doing it to serve them mm-hmm. and i think that's kind of the point you're making here is that what do we as a church how do we handle not just the person who gives a big check every week or not just the deacon who has influence or the young family that we all, you know, just fall down over to get them to place membership. How do we handle that older widow lady who's been there 40 years, but now she's, you know, only coming on Sunday morning or now she's in the nursing home? How how do we think about her? I think that says a lot about our faith. And and that's a challenge, you know, in our own life. I'm I'm the same way because we know that young family, man, that's impactful for the church. But where's, where's our also heart for those others who can't give anything to the church, really? Yeah, inviting people into our homes that don't look like us. Yeah. Um, I think that teaches our, our kids a lot about what ministry ought to look like, too. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe even I remember as a younger uh, minister really thinking, okay, who in the congregation is, is it, am I finding it most difficult to love? Let's invite them over. Let's try. I mean, again... It's the Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace. And sometimes people may not allow that, but I'm sure I'm going to try in a way that I hope doesn't annoy them any more <laughs> than I already am. <laughs> but this this also this whole list reminds me of what Jesus says about judgment in Matthew twenty five, starting in verse thirty one. And I know we've talked a lot about that passage, but what what impresses me is that it's obviously built on a knowledge of God's will. But the standard of judgment isn't applied to, at least directly in that account, 
how much you know. It's how much you care. Yeah. And so what about the prisoner and the sick and the naked and the hungry, those who are struggling? I mean, that's near to the heart of God. And I, I think you, you really have to choose which path. Maybe, at least I felt this way sometimes, you're going to walk. Are you going to walk the path that will probably get you where you want to be? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to walk the path that is best even if it costs you? And, and I haven't always made the right choice, but I know which one I think God desires us to take. And, it, and a lot of this is trust in God to put his priorities first and prayer to try to find his priorities, to seek the heart of God, and then try to live that out and then let, let the chips fall where they fall, if you will. It'll cost you. Yeah. I mean, now, again, God will bless you mm-hmm. and... There are great success stories. I don't want to sound like a pessimist. I'm not pessimistic with regard to God's provision. But it's sort of like marriage. Sometimes my expectations are off. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe because I've skewed my thinking because I've not thought in a healthy way about what that relationship will be. Well, we treat God and ministry the same way. You know, well, because of my last name, I'm going to prosper. You know, because my daddy was a preacher, I'm going to do well, you know. Because this church has a great history, uh, and it's in a great community. Well, you know, again, let's start with God, and let's trust in Him. And even if no one seems to remember me or my legacy, so-called legacy, um, to God be the glory. It's the number two. It's not about our name. It's not, but we sure wish it was sometimes. And you kind of, to as we kind of start moving, wrapping this all up, Thinking about legacy there, Doug, you know, I, I read somewhere and then I've thought from time to time, in a in a hundred years, our, no one's going to really know our legacy. Like, no matter how big an impact we may make at a church or at a school or, you know, whatever kind of secular job we do, a hundred years, that legacy is going to be gone. And probably in most of our cases, it's going to be much less than a hundred years, right? Uh, and so... It's not about that legacy. It's about pointing people to Jesus, isn't it? Because that's the only legacy that we really should be after. You know, I I know the Sixth Avenue Church in Jasper. It's a great congregation, and it's perhaps most famous because that's where Gus Nichols preached. And if you go to Jasper, he's buried in the Golden Circle at the cemetery, mm-hmm. and his house is the office building, and the preacher's study, at least when my dad was there, was Brother Nichols' bedroom. I mean, there's just a lot about Brother Nichols that we remember and respect. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Brother Nichols' greatest legacy, if you will, uh, is the fact he was a servant of the cross, Mm -hmm. and people loved Jesus because of his ministry and his study. And, you know, I I think about, uh, I, I can't speak for him, but I doubt he cares very much about where his body was laid to rest or even whether or not his name is imprinted on some plaque or building in Jasper, Alabama. It's about serving God. Mm -hmm. And so I understand wanting to leave a mark, and I'm thankful for the generous benefactors who do that. Mm -hmm. I think there's a biblical precedent there. But uh, I think we also have to ask, you know, what am I striving for? What am I pouring myself out for? And maybe... Some of us have just had a little bit more failure than others, uh, but 
I hope the primary desire is to just honor God. And so that's why this list struck me, struck a chord with me. It's just very different Mm -hmm. than what I might have thought when I was younger, like get a PhD Mm -hmm. and have everybody think you're pretty cool Mm -hmm. and preach at a huge church. And when you retire, your name is held in glory Mm -hmm. and maybe even is on the side of the building and uh, give time to the people who have the most power Mm -hmm. so you can get power. And then when you die, there'll be a great celebration of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's probably, if we're honest, where a lot of guys may find themselves from time to time. Right. We don't, we don't vocalize that like you just vocalized it, but I think it's often in our, in our hearts, in the back of our minds, mm-hmm. and often a, an Americanized kind of expectation. Um, and, and that goes for other cultures too. But the way you kind of put it, I think, is, is kind of an American idea that we see in the church. What um, any final thoughts, Doug? We really appreciate this. You putting this. Also, I will uh, in the description. I will put this list and um, will note uh, where it originally came from. But and any any final thoughts that you have? All of that uh, description there is sort of a climb the ladder view of ministry. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not suggesting that anybody's done this directly, but. I would just be very careful about using people to climb the ladder, um, using congregations to climb the ladder, abusing your family to climb the ladder, taking financial, you know, maybe even being dishonest in our finances to climb the ladder, um, sacrificing serving others to climb the ladder. It's just, it's human nature. And even in our, in our careers, this is the way we do it. You know, we, for the most part, are always about climbing the ladder. And, you know, maybe instead of trying to build that tower uh, of Babel, we build an altar and we use our lives as a way to demonstrate, even if we're blessed to be in positions of influence, it's not about me. Yeah. And when I'm gone, somebody else is going to be here. Yeah. It's about God. That's right. Uh, I heard it said years ago that our heroes you know, in many ways are not the one who is occupying that big pulpit. Uh, this is someone saying, you know, as, as he's gone through life, his heroes have changed from those guys that were, you know, the prominent ministers or prominent elders or prominent, you know, book writers. But he had gone to the uh, small missionary, small church missionary out in Nebraska, out in, you know, out west or up in the northeast or in Mexico or somewhere that had just spent years, you know, pining away, serving for the Lord with little recognition, little encouragement, with low budgets, and served faithfully for years without hardly any recognition. That's the heroes. And, and, and you know, now certainly when we think about heaven, you know, man, there's a role. God has a role for that large church preacher. We need those guys. We're, yeah. not, we're not running that down. But what we're saying is, Let's also elevate the other guys, too. Let's also respect what they're doing, and let's realize the, the value and the role in those things. And, you know, motivation is not something that people are going to see on the outside. And so I think we're blessed in that in our younger days and maybe even for some of us in our in our later years, those motivations are sometimes not the purest, but they're not as evident. Yeah. But, you know, may God help us to 
examine ourselves and to be driven by the things that matter. And maybe sometimes it takes disappointment to see that, to see that, you know, those people who are in those places are great, faithful servants of the cross, and may God give them success, and I'm going to do everything I can to help them. But, you know, as Paul Rogers, who labored in Centerville, Tennessee for nearly 50 years, used to say, I want to grow where I'm planted, mm-hmm. and I want to be useful where I am. And and if I'm supposed to be, you know, at the Podunk Church of Christ and, and Nowhere America struggling, um, you know, I can glorify God there. That's easy to say, but mm-hmm. boy, it's hard to accept sometimes when you feel, especially as a man, underappreciated, underpaid, underrecognized. But don't forget who really is the one who's going to give you glory. Yes. Amen. Well, Doug, we really appreciate your thoughts on this. Appreciate you leading us in this discussion and appreciate your work here at Freed Harmon and your work with the lectureship. We, um, Thank you for listening and look forward to being with you next time and continue to share this podcast with others. And if we can be of service to you here at Freed Harmon and the Center for Excellence in Spiritual Leadership, please reach out to us at any opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Freed Harmon Leadership Podcast. For more great content and to see the services the Center for Excellence in Spiritual Leadership offers your local congregation, please visit www.supportingspiritualleadership.com. Until next time, remember, God uses ordinary people to lead His people into extraordinary feats.